From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and my guest today is Julie Dirksen. Julie Dirksen is an independent consultant and instructional designer whose specialty areas include instructional design, behavior change, and cognitive psychology. She's the author of Design for How People Learn, which is now in its second edition from Peach Pit Press. Julie, you've been on the show before. I want to welcome you back. We had a great conversation last time. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. Now, the last time we met, we spoke about the idea of digital habit formation. And I guess kind of a companion topic to that is just the idea of behavior change. I'd like to talk to you about that today and the science behind it. A metaphor you've used before is the rider and the elephant. And this is a key to understanding human behavior. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the metaphor actually comes from a psychology professor named Jonathan Haidt, who wrote about the rider and the elephant in a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. He does things in positive psychology. He's currently doing a lot in political psychology, moral psychology, all of those kinds of areas. And he talked about how your brain or the way that you function is kind of like a rider and an elephant. And what he meant by that is if you sort of think about the way that your brain has kind of evolved, if you go down by your spinal cord, you find some of the oldest functions and some of the most automatic functions, things like breathing and heart rate. And then as you sort of move up, you've kind of got vision, which is sort of in the back, um, the back of your skull. Um, you have hearing on the sides, you have motion um, through the top. And right in the middle of the brain is the older um, functions around emotion. So you get the limbic system with the hypothalamus and the amygdala. And that's where fight or flight reactions tend to, to be centered. Um, it's where you have, you know, fear reactions. It's where you have a lot of these kinds of emotional things. And then if we get up right in front, so right behind your eyes is an area called the prefrontal cortex, which is generally considered to be the primary location for things like executive control. And so with executive control, you do things like control impulses, uh, you, um, you know, it involves, it's involved in things like calming yourself down. Um, and a, one of the big kind of human advantages is our ability to sort of project into the future and say, okay, if I sacrifice something right now, I get this future benefit for it. And so I'm actually going to make that trade off. And animals generally are not considered to be able to do too, too much sort of future planning. There's a little bit, um, but even things like hiding food for the winter is considered to probably be more of an instinctive behavior than an actual planning behavior. Um, so humans have this really great advantage where they can say, oh, you know, I want to go shopping and buy that stuff, but I really should save money so that I can go on a trip later. So I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice a current satisfier of being able to buy some things and I'm going to get a bigger satisfier later of being able to go on a trip or I'm going to save for retirement or I'm going to get my homework out of the way so that I know that I can relax and watch, you know, TV later or, you know, any of those kinds of any things. Kind of like delayed gratification thought process. Yeah, Exactly. And so that's one of our really kind of crucial evolutionary functions that helps us, helps us sort of advance as a species, our ability to sort of say, I'm going to control this impulse now and I'm going to do something that I know is better in the long term. And so what Jonathan Haidt talks about is the elephant and the rider is the elephant is all of that sort of emotional, visceral, 
self. So it's the feeling self. It's the visceral experience self. It's this emotional self is all the elephant. And the rider is your sort of Mr. Spock brain sitting up there going, well, logically and rationally, you really shouldn't eat those French fries because you know, you're trying to, you know, so get in shape for swimsuit season or whatever it is. So similar to like the adult and child or id superego. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. It's very, it's very much like that kind of, that kind of model. And so the idea is we all have these big elephants that are, that are feeling stuff and wanting to do things. And we're all have a rider that's controlling it. And part of the benefit of the metaphor is that we tend to think that the rider's in control most of the time. But we know this is not really true. One of the examples that I use is, is I'll ask a group of people, how many people have ever had the experience of when they wake up in the morning and their alarm goes off, they know they should get up. They should absolutely get up. If they don't get up now, they're going to hit traffic on the way to work and it's going to take forever. And then they're not going to have time to review their notes before they have to do that phone call. And then they should totally get up. So the trains aren't crazy busy or whatever it is. And you still hit the snooze button anyway. Yes. Because it's cold and bed is nice and warm and it's comfortable. And that's pure elephant, right? Your rider is saying, absolutely, the right action for you is to get up. And your elephant is like, mm, I'm feeling warm. I'm feeling comfortable. This is really nice. We'll do 10 more minutes. So the snooze button is an absolute case where you can totally see where you, you think the rider's in charge, but really the elephant is making a lot of these decisions. Yes. And they're making, the elephant makes a lot of decisions about, you know, dessert um, or, you know, watching TV versus getting started on that project or, you know, any number of those kinds of things. And so being able to sort of clearly see, see where your rider is in charge versus where your elephant's trying to influence things. My elephant is a terrible procrastinator um, and always wants to wait <laughs> to, to get started with stuff. And so being able to just sort of actively recognize that can sometimes be helpful. Um, and, you know, your elephant is, um, is very impulsive, but it's also very centered in what's happening right now. So your rider is the part of your brain that can project forward into the future and say that there's benefit. Your elephant is the part of your brain that's saying, um, no, this is, this is better. I'm pretty sure this is better, but it's only got a right now focus. So for example, if you know you should be working on your taxes, but The Walking Dead is on TV and your elephant says, hey, The Walking Dead is much more entertaining than taxes. It's not that the elephant is wrong. The elephant is absolutely right that The Walking Dead is more entertaining for taxes. And it, the elephant, you know, kind of only cares about what's happening right now. So your rider is the one that's saying, I know you're right. It would be more entertaining to watch, you know, TV than to do taxes. But I can anticipate that there's a future consequence coming if I don't get the taxes done. And basically the answer is we have to do the taxes. So your rider can pull your elephant along. One of the big issues is trying to find behaviors that both your rider and your elephant can get behind. So for example, you want to exercise more and you, you think treadmills might be a good way to do it, but your elephant hates treadmills because they're super boring. Um, then you're going to always be struggling to make yourself do that. If on the other hand, your elephant like wa likes walking by the river and you, um, your rider also says, Hey, that's a really good way to get exercise. Then that's going to be much less of a struggle because you're not trying to kind of corral your elephant. 
your elephant's actually going, hey, it is actually nice out here. I do like this. And so then that becomes a much easier answer for getting more exercise than something where you're sort of forcing yourself to do something that's not fun or not, you know, interesting. Right. Or the Walking Dead's on TV, so maybe the treadmill becomes more appealing that right. way, right? Yes, absolutely. So if you can if you can successfully tie those, then all of a sudden the elephant's on board with this walking on the treadmill plan because it means they get to also watch The Walking Dead. There you go. So it's as if we've got two voices. We've got two entities inside of us. How do we manage that dichotomy? You've already spoken to it a bit, but Mm -hmm. just if you can expand on this idea of these, really we have two selves, uh, two competing voices. Yep. Yeah. And specifically the exercise example, there's a researcher and I'm going to forget her name. The, The name of the book that she's written is called No Sweat. And it has to do with what kinds of motivational messages actually seem to be more durable and better for getting people to exercise. And a lot of it is actually about figuring out what are nearer goals that you can have. So if my goal is to just have more energy during the day, that's a better goal than say losing, you know, 25 pounds because losing 25 pounds is a really long-term stretched out goal versus having more energy in the day is something that I could actually see happening sooner and it's much more near term. And so therefore it's more compelling again, not just to the rider, but to the elephant because it can actually sort of see it. Yeah. It's a benefit now. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that, that she's done quite a bit of research and I'm uh, I apologize. I'll find the name for you, but, um, but she's done quite a bit of research on trying to figure out how do they create better motivational messages for exercise. And one of the big tactics is to focus on near term benefits. They could be small benefits, but it's, if they're sooner, that's better. Um, there's a term in behavioral economics called hyperbolic discounting. And I'm pretty obsessed with this. And so if I ask you a couple of questions, if I asked you, would you rather have $10 today or $11 tomorrow? Which one would you pick? It depends, but I might say $11 tomorrow. Okay. Which is your rider saying, hey, it's worth waiting an extra day for this reward to get to get a bigger reward. Right. So an extra dollar. And when I ask that of a group of people, I get about 50-50, 60-40 split of people who are wanted today versus people who are willing to wait. But if I ask you the question, would you rather have $10 today or $11 in a year, which one would you pick? I'd want $10 now. Yeah. And pretty much everybody, I occasionally get a stubborn outlier, but almost everybody would say the same thing where they would say, yeah, 11, $11 in a year is too far out. I want the $10 today. So the change isn't the size of the reward. The change is when you're getting the reward. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that as soon as we take a reward that we're going to get now and we move it into the future, there's a drop off at how much value that reward has. Same thing with consequences, so negative consequences. And so what happens is, and it actually drops off in a hyperbolic curve, which is where the the term comes from, hyperbolic discounting. I'm going to discount this reward in a hyperbolic curve until it sort of flattens out into the future. And so if you think about it, the consequence for some of our negative behaviors, like, for example, smoking, is potentially death. You could die from smoking, but it's a death that might come 20 years in the future. And so by being so far out in the future, you know, and by being not quite certain, like we all know stories of uncle Joe who, you know, smoked till he was 98 and George Burns. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Um, so we've got a little bit of uncertainty about it and it's also far in the future. So we can discount that consequence enough that it doesn't necessarily impact our current behavior. And, you know, um, generally speaking, we want to avoid things that are going to kill us, but if they're far out in the future or if they're intangible, then we can kind of convince ourselves that it's, it's not so bad basically. Or our elephant is like, ah, you know, I'm not going to worry about that now. That's way, way ahead. Let's, let's worry about getting a nice nicotine hit right now. So 
That's interesting. Can you just explain then the discounting, how you know, you're, you've got that curve that goes out in time? Is this something you could strategically um, um, sure. orchestrate for yourself with like the discounting of yeah. whether it's a reward? Or- right. Um, so I, I think we talked last time when we were talking about digital habits about Fitbits. Well, so one of the problems with exercise is that the reward usually comes several weeks out. So if I start exercising now, if I'm lucky, I'm the person who gets a nice kind of endorphin high off of exercising and I'll feel that within an hour or two or something like that. But if I don't and I'm just exercising, which it's all effort and I don't really enjoy the act of exercising, uh, if I'm one of those people, you know, if I'm in that circumstance, then the problem is, is that the rewards four or six weeks in the future when I start to feel better and I don't get winded walking upstairs and whatever it is. And so that's a long time to wait for this reward because I'm discounting it. I'm That reward's not as valuable as something that I get more immediately. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is figure out always, how do I create a more immediate reward? Um, and I mentioned again last time this walking app that if I walk for an extra few minutes, I get a little bit more of this espionage story. It's mm-hmm. this app called The Walk. Um, it's made by the same people who created a game called Zombie Run, which does the same thing for runners. But basically, instead of having to wait four to six weeks for the reward for walking, you know, an extra 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes, I get it immediately in that I get the next installment of the story. I get to ne- play the next part of the game. So what I've done is I've taken a reward that I was going to have to wait a really long time and replaced it with a different reward, but with something that I'm going to get immediately as soon as I do the action. That's helpful. That's a great example. And I must get that app, by the way. Incentives seem to matter then, but how does that work in practical terms? Yeah, incentives are a challenging area. Um, We're seeing a lot of stuff around gamification as a way to handle behavior change. But one of the big problems is intrinsic versus extrinsic rewards. One of the principles that's really behind a lot of this is self-determination theory, which is Desi and Ryan are the primary researchers and the authors of that particular model. And what that does is it looks at a motivation model and it says one end of the spectrum, somebody's not motivated at all. And at the other end of the spectrum, somebody's fully intrinsically motivated. And they define intrinsic motivation as you would do it even if there's no reward for it at all. You enjoy the act of doing it for the love of it, for the love of it. So my friend Mark plays the guitar and loves playing the guitar and he doesn't care if anybody's listening to him. He'll sit home on a Saturday afternoon and play the guitar for a couple of hours just because he so enjoys the act of playing the guitar. And it doesn't matter to him if anybody hears him. It doesn't matter to him if he gets applause for his performances. It doesn't even matter to him if he's good at it in other people's opinion. He just really enjoys the act. So that's a fully intrinsic reward for him where the act of doing it itself is its own satisfaction and reward. Um, At the other end of the spectrum, we have extrinsic rewards, which is I am only going to play the guitar because I think that if I become a really good guitar player, I can make money doing it or I can get fame or adulation or any of those kinds of things. I don't find the act of playing the guitar particularly satisfying in and of itself, but I think that there are some benefits that I could get from it. That's a fully extrinsic motivation. And And as long as I'm the one driving it, at least that helps. But when we try to attach extrinsic motivations to activities, so for example, you might have a wellness program at work. And if you do so many 5Ks, you will get points and then you can use those points to purchase items. That would be a case of a fully extrinsic reward. Now, the problem is, is that we're really good at playing whatever game it is that we're playing. 
and we'll figure out the most efficient way to win the game. Now, if winning the game is playing the guitar because it's satisfying, then the most efficient way to do that is to play more guitar. However, if the game is to get the most points, I'm going to find the most efficient way to get the most points. Not necessarily the best way to do it, or not necessarily the, you know, the one that's actually in service of the real point of the activity, which is to be healthier or, you know, things like that, if it's, if it's an exercise example. And they find that when they shift the emphasis to extrinsic rewards, you, a lot of problem behaviors start to show up. So you get people who um, are cheating the system. There's a case, I think it's in Kansas City, of a woman who got almost $180,000 worth of stuff from her employer's wellness program because her three-year-old child supposedly ran four marathons and a triathlon and whatever else. So clearly there's something kind of wrong with that. I mean, it's actually right. fraudulent. But, but the case is she was really good at playing that particular game, which is how do I get stuff out of this wellness program, not how do I get well, how do I become right. healthy and things like Gaming that. Gaming the system yeah. versus mm -hmm. really pursuing that goal. Right. And we're tuned to do that. We're tuned to figure out how do I play this game as most effectively as possible. Uh -huh. So if the goals and the rewards are very extrinsic, the shift goes from the activity itself to doing the rewards. So um, one of the pieces of research that they've done with this, and the primary person who writes a lot about this is a guy by the name of Alfie Cohn, and he's got a book called Punished by Rewards, and he looks at extrinsic motivators. And so one of the pieces of research that he talks about a fair bit is where they were looking at kids and drawing pictures. Well, if you give a kid markers and paper they will draw pictures and they will draw these fantastic pictures. Um, my godson was showing me a picture the other day that was this incredible sort of maze thing and it had traps and you had to kind of get through it. And it was practically like a game board all in mm -hmm. of itself. It was beautiful and elaborate and had castles and it had all of these things. And it was this fantastic thing. So if you, you know, given left to their own devices, kids will draw amazing pictures. But if you start paying those children a dollar for every picture you get, what do you think the effects are of if you sort of switch it from here, you're going to draw these pictures because it's an enjoyable activity and you're going to do it to now I'm going to pay you to draw pictures. Right. You may be getting artificial. You may be getting slapdash stuff, right? Yeah. Because you'll, you'll be getting the picture that's drawn when they don't feel like it. Yeah. But they want the dollar or whatever they want was the reward, promised. Right? right. And so you're not going to get these big, beautiful, elaborate pictures. You're going to get right. a picture with a box and a tree and a smiley face. And, you know, and then you're going to get to the point where you just get a little squiggle on a piece of paper or something like that, because they're going to figure out the most efficient way to get the reward rather than having the reward be drawing the pictures themselves. And this is research that's been replicated in a number of different ways. Additionally, kids who get paid to draw pictures wind up drawing less pictures than kids just left to their own devices to draw pictures. And so what we want to be really, really careful about doing is taking something that people should have intrinsic motivation about Drawing pictures is fun and satisfying. Getting exercise and getting healthy is fun and satisfying. You know, any of those kinds of things, there's real intrinsic value to that. And there's some reasons to, you know, get value from it. And by trying to switch the primary form of motivation to an extrinsic reward, we're probably going to potentially damage their intrinsic motivation. And also the outcome is going to be whatever the fastest and quickest method to whatever the reward or goal is, as opposed to any kind of real thing. You see this with loyalty schemes. You know, I, I'm, I travel far, far too much and I have platinum status on my airline, but the minute that that stops having certain rewards for me, I'm, I, I feel no sense of loyalty to my airplane, you know, my airline because they haven't, 
it's very transactional. Like if I fly this many things, I get this, but I don't ever get extras from them. And they don't ever, like, I don't ever feel that they're sincere and sort of taking care of me as a customer. On the other hand, a friend of mine has had really good experiences with the airline. He really flies. There was a death in the family a few years ago, and it was actually a distant relative, but yet one that they were very close to. And the airline totally took care of him. They totally made sure that he did, they he got on a flight out, that he was able to get home to his family, and they didn't charge him a million fees to do it, and they didn't give him a hard time about it. And so that's a case where we have the purchase loyalty that I have to my airline, which is I have platinum, that's worth something, and you know I can at least get myself into exit rows versus the real intrinsic loyalty that he has to this airline, which was when he was having a really hard time, they they seriously took care of him as a customer. Right. An authentic reaction to you as a customer where you really felt taken care of mm-hmm. versus the transactional thing where I, right. you know, you've just really, you purchased it anyway. Mm-hmm. And we want to be very careful about using any of those kind of purchased loyalty or purchased compliance or purchased behaviors because the minute that the incentive goes away, so this behavior, you know, and so we want to make sure that we're really careful about that because we can, as I mentioned, damage intrinsic motivation. And also it's, it's not a durable behavior typically. Yeah. There was news recently about a company that's changed their rewards program from how many times you visit their store being mm-hmm. the basis of the reward to now just how many points or actually dollars spent. And it's really radically shifts the, Mm-hmm. Not just the reward program, but the original sense of, are they happy to see me yeah. or are they just happy when I spend more money at the store? Right. You know, it's a very interesting discussion that's, that w- was a result of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you want, you want to be leveraging people's intrinsic motivation as much as you possibly can and having them come up with their own reasons for why they're doing something. I was talking to somebody who was... Oh gosh, she was teaching a workshop and I'm not going to get it quite right, but, uh, but it was something fairly technical, like commenting on code when you're a programmer. So he's teaching good practices for commenting on code. And he was saying he noticed a real difference in his workshop. If instead of telling them at the beginning of the workshop, here's why you need to comment your code. Well, if he just had the class tell him why it was important to comment code. So just the fact that they were the ones who came up with the list of reasons and the reasons are the same and they didn't come, they don't come up with anything radically new or different in that. But just the fact that the participants of the class are telling him, here's why this is important. Here's why we should learn this as opposed to him telling them, here's why this is important. Here's why you should learn this. Just the fact that it was coming from them intrinsically as opposed to him sort of forcing it on people, he says, makes a really big difference in the, the level of participation and interest in the class for the rest of the, the the whole duration of the workshop. That's a good example. Now, you've mentioned something called the trolley problem. Mm. I saw that in one of your presentations, yeah. and I'm dying to know what that means. Okay. So um, there's a classic thought experiment. in uh, It gets used in philosophy and psychology, and it's called the trolley problem. So I'm going to ask you two questions. The first question is you are um, standing by a trolley track and you know that down the track, there's nine workers who are working on the track and there's a trolley coming and it's out of control and it is going to go down the track and it's going to run over those nine workers. And it turns out you're standing right by the switch. There's a, one of those big lever things and you can flip the switch. And if you flip the switch, instead of going down the track where the nine workers are, it's going to go down a different track where there's only one worker. And it's not a trick question, but would you flip the switch? 
Well, is the alternative like you can run and warn everybody? No, no. Okay. It's, it's the only option you've got. Okay. Gosh. It's not your question. I would have to switch it to the one, I guess. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and the vast majority of people say that that's the answer that they pick. Something Unless you really hate trolley workers for some strange reason, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. So that's something over 90% of people absolutely would, in that scenario, flip the switch. Okay. So, and most people would choose just the lesser evil. Nine workers, one worker. We're just going to go with the lesser evil. So the second question that, that usually comes up is, okay, so another scenario, you're by the trolley track, but this time you're on a little bridge thing above the trolley track. And there's the nine workers down, but there's no switch. There's no alternate track. There's just the trolley coming. It's going to run over these nine workers and kill them all. And you are standing on a bridge and you're a small person, so you can't really do anything in terms of stopping it or signaling it. But there's this really big guy, this big, huge guy, and he's leaning over the track. And if you just give him a little push... He's going to fall over onto the track and it'll stop the trolley and it'll save the lives of the nine workers. <laughs> so I won't even ask you if you would push the guy off the bridge because we don't need to know that. But the vast majority of people say absolutely not. You know, it's, it's almost a, it's almost a flipped result. Almost as many people say that they would absolutely yes. not push a guy off the bridge to save the nine workers and do the trolley. Well, if we think about this from a purely mathematical kind of logical point of view, it's the same problem right? It's one person dying instead of nine people dying. Yes. So the question is, why won't people push the guy off the bridge? I don't know. What do you think? Why is, it, is it a sense of direct responsibility for the death of somebody? Yeah, almost certainly in the idea of actually putting hands on somebody. Yeah. Um, and so what happened a few years ago, and so this, this problem has existed for quite a while, but what happened a few years ago is there's a researcher named Joshua Green who was at Harvard at the time, I think, who actually did this particular problem in an fMRI, so a functional magnetic resonance imaging tool, which basically shows you which areas of the brain are engaging at any given time around a particular problem. And the interesting piece about this is they look at the trolley problem is that the first decision is a very cognitive decision. It's staying up in areas like the prefrontal cortex and things like that, where we're making these kind of logical, rational, one person, nine people, one person's not, is less bad than nine people. So, okay, fine. I'll split the switch. So because it's not a hands-on sort of thing, it's this very cognitive problem. It's mostly rider in that case. The second problem when they ask people, where you actually have to push your hands and push somebody off of a bridge, that engages much more of these sort of older emotional areas. So it's much more limbic system involvement and things like that, which is this sort of flash of like, no, killing people is wrong. Like that's not okay. And it's not. So essentially we have different brain regions engaged in the second problem than we have in the first problem. So different areas are making those decisions. And it's so, a little bit like asking the rider versus the elephant, right? Yeah. You're asking two different people in a sense and you, right. you would get a different reaction. Yeah, absolutely. So the first question is mostly rider. The second question is mostly elephant in terms of who decides who's making the decision in terms of who's answering the question. And I'm being a little bit, um, being a little bit glossy about the um, brain regions, but if you want to find the paper, you can actually see which ones were engaged yeah. and things like that. But, you know, fundamentally it's a d sort of different parts of the brain are engaged in the decision-making. So even though, again, logically or rationally, it's the same decision, one life for nine lives in in terms of how visceral and how immediate it is, it's handled very differently by your brain. Well, and this has really interesting impacts as far as I'm concerned in terms of behavior change. 
Because a lot of these things that we're making decisions about, again, it comes to this question of who's making the decision in terms of is it the rider, is it the elephant who's engaged? And this is the trolley problem just happens to be a really nice example to really show what does that look like in both physiologically and also how does it, how do the two questions feel differently? And it, there seems to be some proof that having emotional visceral experiences are a big part of how we make decisions. And that when we start to get into behavior change, I think a lot of behavior change problems are where the rider knows the right thing to do, but the elephant's not convinced. So if we really want to change behavior, how do we engage the elephant? So if I, if we look at the act of smoking, for example, if you're a smoker, I, I, I'm not a smoker, so I don't think it's ever nice, but I understand that if you're a smoker, you know, smoking, the act of smoking is actually pleasurable. So what you have is you have your rider saying, smoking's bad for me, but you have your elephant saying, no, it's great. It's delightful Uh (laughs) because the elephant isn't looking forward. The elephant just cares about what's happening right now. And so there are, if we think about it, this is one of those don't try this at home things, but one of the methods for getting people to quit smoking is to have them smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke until they're sick, basically, until they're throwing up because they're so sick. And it seems to have, again, don't try this at home because we can start getting into things like nicotine poisoning. So, you know, big disclaimer on it. But the idea is, is then not only the, not only the rider knows that smoking is bad, but the elephant is like, oh, that was disgusting. That was not good. I did not enjoy that. And so you're now creating this sense with the elephant as well that, that you're getting consensus between both kind of factions that smoking is a bad idea. That's a good example. And very similar to, you know, eating till you're sick, Mm -hmm. right? You may not want to look at a certain food again because you associate it with throwing up the last time you overdid it. Mm -hmm. I had a friend who would never eat Doritos again because he Mm -hmm. he got sick on Doritos. (laughs) Right. Um, Nausea or disgust is a really powerful emotion for behavior because it's one of those things that keeps us alive. If you eat something and it makes you sick, from an evolutionary point of view, you want a nice mechanism in your brain saying, never eat that again. It was a bad idea. So even though logically we know that eating dim sum doesn't in one place and getting sick doesn't mean that every single dim sum in the world is going to make you sick, but your elephant's not that sophisticated. It just says dim sum is bad and we should never eat it again because it made us sick that one time or something like that. It's an interesting thing. I think there's a lot of power to visceral experience in terms of influencing the elephant. Another really one of my favorite studies is one that was done at the Stanford virtual reality lab. So they were looking at the behavior of using um, disposable paper products, so napkins or paper towels or whatever. So the idea is they wanted to kind of educate people about if you use this many disposable paper products over the course of the year, here's how many trees have to get cut down. And it's in service of environmental or green behaviors and preventing deforestation and all of those kinds of things. So they wanted to see if they could influence people's behaviors for how much paper towel, you know, how much paper products they used. And so what they did is they educated, they had two groups and they educated both groups about the paper products, but then one group went off into what was really essentially a very cognitive condition where they were reading about cutting down trees. And then the other group went into a virtual reality environment where they had a virtual trees and a virtual chainsaw, and they were actually cutting down virtual trees to sort of, you know, see the trees being cut down that were needed to make the paper products. And when they came back out of it, they asked both groups, are you going to use less paper? And both the interesting thing is both groups said, yes, I've 
this is clearly an important issue. I believe that, you know, I should use this paper. But then they would spill a glass of water before the people left the room and made it, made it look accidental and then count how many paper towels they use, the particular participant used to mop up the spill. And so the people, even though they both said in equal numbers that they were going to use less paper towels, the people who had been in the more visceral condition, the virtual reality condition, where they're actually cutting down virtual trees, used almost 20% less paper napkins than the people who had been in the purely cognitive condition. And so I don't want to overgeneralize too, too much from one study, but it's a really interesting idea that if you can sort of bring the elephant along, that that's probably going to have a bigger impact on behavior. So really feeling it, not just knowing it, mm-hmm. was what made the difference. Yeah. That's excellent. This is great stuff, Julie. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> I want to thank you for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University. 